Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw, with me Wes Peppers, and together we get to answer your Bible questions. Are you ready to go? We're ready to go. All right. Let's get to it. few preliminaries. Absolutely. Let's dive right in with a question from Carla, who asks, Explain to me how the rapture is not true. I know it's not, but how do I explain it to others so they can understand? Let's do a little bit of background. What does she mean, the rapture? What is that? And, and, And... understandings of the rapture vary, mm-hmm, but generally right. speaking, what are we dealing with here? Sure. The rapture refers to the second coming of Jesus, and the word rapture just literally means a catching up or a taking up of God's people. And so there's a lot of theories out there. One of those ones that are very popular include a secret rapture yeah. where people are kind of caught up and the rest of the world wonders what's going on. And then Jesus takes those people to heaven, and then there's a whole uh, mirth of events that take place after that, and then Jesus comes back again. But we want to look at the Bible. The Bible is very clear all the way through, and there's a lot of novels written about the rapture. Oh, yeah. Some people have made a whole ton of money. That's right, a whole ton of money. And and what's interesting about some of those novels is they they state in the very beginning, this is a novel. Right. This is uh, not really factual. But but so, people read those novels, and they that's where them. they get their theology from. That's and right. And those novels educate, or rather miseducate, generations of yes, people. that's right. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is you cannot find the secret rapture in the Bible. You don't find it. No. Jesus will come back. The Bible says this, the Lord himself shall descend. We're answering your question. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Nothing secret about that. Uh, so, so it's just not possible to believe that Jesus comes back secretly. It's too clear in Scripture. Revelation chapter 19, he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, Revelation, no, not Revelation. First Corinthians 15 talks about what happens to us when Jesus comes back. The dead in Christ will rise. But people will say, oh, that's the second coming. Right. This is the rapture that precedes that. Yes. You don't find any scripture that refers to two different events. All the way through, it's consistent. There's one event. Now, there is some confusion about this secret rapture that comes from some prophecies in Daniel. And it's kind of difficult to get into too much of that now, but there's some misunderstandings of that. But you go back, John, to several of the reformers and several of the ancient theologians. They all believed in the second coming, one coming that's loud and glorious and and powerful. And they did not believe in the secret rapture. That's a very young theory. Very young. And uh, it kind of originated some time ago. Then it was dropped, and then it got picked up again. But... There are some verses that talk about kind of the, the, the secret manner and so forth. But when you really look at those verses, they're always referring to the timing of Jesus coming, not the actual event itself. The event itself is loud. It is glorious. It is powerful. Jesus blows the trumpet and the uh, dead come out of their graves. And so the, the Bible is very clear about the second coming versus a secret rapture. What's challenging is, is explaining to someone that something's n- not true. So what you've got to do is you've got to get the error and then expose that. What's easier is to explain the truth. So you go to Acts 1 verses 9 through 11. 
where it's very, very clear about the manner of Jesus' return. First Thessalonians chapter 4, it's very clear. Now, if you wanted to, you'd go to Daniel and chapter 9. Why don't we go there now, Wes, and just look at sure. what you said. It's kind of complex, and it is, but we'll, we'll be really s- straightforward and, and uh, simple about this. In Daniel chapter 9 is the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And it, it's just really interesting how this prophecy is used or misused. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth is Daniel 9.25 of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublous times. After threescore and two weeks, and that's the 69 weeks, but told you it's just a little uh, messy. Messiah will be cut off, but not from self. And the people of the prince that shall come shall do thus and so. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he'll cause the sacrifices and the oblation to cease and so forth. So you've got a 70-week prophecy, 70 weeks. What people who believe in the rapture theory and the seven years of tribulation believe is that the 70th week is somehow cut off from the the other 69 weeks. I mean, it's just really difficult to demonstrate that that's true because it's, it's simply not. And it's almost hard to demonstrate that it's not true because you've got to ask someone to read and be logical. If they don't want to be logical, they won't. That's right. Here's what the devil has done. He has simply educated or miseducated the generation into a tradition, a teaching of man. How do you disprove it? Look at the verses that speak about the return of Jesus. You show that it's going to be audible. People will hear it. Literally, it'll be really Jesus. Visible. Uh, Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Uh, it's, it's a little hard to disprove something that doesn't even exist. But if you will show, here's what it says about the second coming. When you look in Daniel chapter 9, it's 70 weeks, not 69 weeks the 70th week arbitrarily cut off. And what they do is they say that 70th week is a seven-year period down in the end of time, way down in the end of time. But it, it isn't. So good luck with that. If you really want to know how to prove or disprove something, you do it this way. You pray. You pray and pray and pray and pray. And then share with that person you're talking to maybe the It Is Written Bible Study Guide dealing with the second coming of Jesus. You want to get that. And what you might do is just say, hey, take a look at this. Read it through. Tell me what you think. I'd be interested in your input, and then that'll give rise to a conversation. Yeah, I will just make one more point about this, that all of the time prophecies in the Bible are consistent, that when they start, they go all the way through and they finish. That's right. There's none of them, none of them are chopped up or, or sectioned off where one applies to one period in history and another one to another. They all go consistently through, and there's no evidence whatsoever that this one will be chopped up. It's, right. it's just not there. But I tell you what, there's, there's, there's weight in numbers. There's, yes. there's power in a critical mass. And when you've got oodles of people believing this, uh, they're believing it because they're told to believe it. They're believing it because they believe it. They're not believing it because it's true. It, it, it isn't true. Nothing true about it. Chandler asks this question. God knows everything. Would you say amen out there? Amen. He knew Adam and then Eve, sorry, Eve and then Adam would eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Was it God's plan for sin to enter the world he created? Why did God put Satan in the Garden of Eden? So I think we can answer this quickly. Was it God's 
plan for sin to enter the world. Never. No, because sin brings with it what? Death. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It, it is not anything about it. It was not God's plan. So why did he put Satan in the Garden of Eden? Sure. We had answered this on a previous program, but God respects freedom of choice. And God wanted to allow Adam and Eve to have the freedom of choice. And you can't really have true love without freedom. And so, the, uh, you know, Adam ate the forbidden fruit, uh, and he made that choice to, along with Eve, to accept the evil, and that brought evil and birth sin into the world. But did God put him there? Did he put him in the Garden of Eden? Well, the Bible says that uh, in Revelation, when there was that war in heaven, that the devil was cast to the earth. He came to the earth. And the reason that God allowed that is because there was this great controversy going on, and there was this war between good and evil, and Satan was making his accusations against God, and God had to give Adam and Eve the opportunity to choose him loyally with their own freedom of conscience, their own choice, and Satan would not have been satisfied. He would have accused God of being a tyrant if God had not allowed that. So God allowed it. It wasn't God's intention. God never wanted sin to enter into the universe in the very first place. But it did. But thankfully, God had a plan for it. And that's what we don't want to overlook. People get hung up on, man, why did God do this? Yeah, particularly when he knew it would cost the life of his son. So you understand, if God was willing to go through that, it had to have been for our good. God was the one who took the hit. He bore the brunt. He carried the weight. His heart still hurts because there are people rejecting him rather than accepting him. But God had to honor freedom of choice. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. He'd be a tyrant. He'd be a dictator. You wouldn't want that at all. Question from Madison. Deuteronomy 12, 15. It's confusing when it mentions the clean and the unclean. Is it referring to clean and unclean animals? If so, what is it saying about them? I've got to read that for you. Notwithstanding, thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates, whatsoever your soul lusteth after or desires, according to the blessing of the Lord God which he hath given thee, the unclean and the clean may eat thereof, as of the roebuck and of the heart. So the animals being referred to are clean animals. The clean and the unclean are people, uh, not in that food sense. I think you understand that. But the people who are ceremonial clean or the people who are ceremonially, ceremonially clean, ceremonially clean or go. ceremonially unclean. unclean. It's the people that are being brought into question here. Hey, whether you're this or that, you can go ahead and eat the food. But of course, the food, when it comes to God's menu, is all Clean food. Clean food, that's right. Absolutely. He gives no permission anywhere in Scripture to eat unclean food. Question here from, I'm going to call him Jose. It's not his actual name, but I don't want to out him owing to the nature of the question. I'm a 25-year-old Christian, and I came across a young lady on social media who is also a Christian. You know, I'm I'm concerned already. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A little nervous here. Oh, yeah. We've been messaging each other, studying the Bible, and praying together. I'm now in love with her. Of course you are. But I never asked God for a lady. So two questions. Can the Lord give me what I didn't ask for? Would the answer that would be yes. Sure. Sure. You may, not, right. you, may not, you may not have been thinking the time was right for you. God may have decided this is the right time. He can give you, what, give you what you need. But this is the better question. And does it matter that she lives far away and I've never actually met her? I'm hearing alarm bells, man. That's right. Jose, if you're my son, I'm saying to you, what are you thinking? Yes. I'd yes. say that nicely in a very fatherly way. Probably I'd say it more like, what are you thinking? That's right. But, but something like that. Listen, man, you've never met her. 
cool your jets, back off, take a few deep breaths, take a cold shower, do whatever you've got to do to, 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 to dial this back a little bit. You've, you're in love with her. Why? Because she, uh, she's pretty, great. Uh, she's spiritual. They're all spiritual, man. When they're dating a Christian guy and they want a Christian guy, they're as spiritual as, as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, what else about her? Uh, I'm in love with her. She's far away and we've never met. That's difficult. Yeah. You want to see somebody in a daily interaction with others. How do they treat their parents? How do they treat a stranger on the street? How do they treat the little old lady crossing the road? Yeah. How do they interact with people on a regular basis? you got to understand that person's character before you're going to jump in. You know, anybody can be whatever they want to through a screen. Mm-hmm. They can present the sweetest, kindest, most loving person that you can imagine. They might be the nastiest person on the planet. So you got to watch for that. It might and, be, uh, listen, it might be that this person has gone to every question you've That's ever had. Right. But, but you got to proceed with caution. Dial it back. And of course, yeah. of course, the same thing goes for her. Mm-hmm. She's looking at you and, and what are you? I mean, she doesn't know how you uh, carry on in your natural environment. So you listen, do yourself a favor. You're not in love. You're infatuated. And there's someone here who checks a bunch of boxes Love is a principle, not an emotion. And what you're dealing with is an emotion. So, so dial it back, work from principle. And once you've met her and her parents and her brother and you've learned about her and you understand a little bit about the way she rolls and lives her life and, you know, like you said, treats yeah. animals and little old ladies and yeah, that's right. the homeless man in the street and, and so forth. Once you figure that stuff out, then you have a couple of conversations with God. I mean, you'd be talking with God about it all along the way. But um, let's not make any leaps here. So that's what Uncle John is saying. Amen. Back off. Slow down. It ain't love yet. It may be that. But if you decide right now this is love, man, you are ignoring everything. You're going to say, yeah, she doesn't get on well with her dad. But, you know, that's because he, oh, she doesn't really treat her mother with a great amount of respect. But, you know, if you've met her mother, you're going to make all kind of excuses for it. You're anyway, yeah. better stop while we're ahead. That's right. If we're ahead. Uh, if you have a question for us, we'd love it. Email it to us, lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll be back with more in a moment. I'm John Bradshaw. He's Wes Peppers. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. It's everywhere, adorning churches, adorning people. There's a season every year commemorating the cross. But beyond eggs and rabbits, there's a power, the power of a sacrifice, the power of the love of God. Be sure you see At the Cross and learn about the single event that changed the course of history, the event that can change your life forever. Predicted by prophets and foretold by Jesus Himself, what happened at the cross was a demonstration of God's love like no other. Humanity's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden brought upon Adam and Eve and their descendants inescapable consequences. But into that turmoil stepped Jesus, promising the planet a way of escape. Don't miss At the Cross, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written with Wes Peppers. I am John Bradshaw, and these are your questions. We've got one from Rick Wes. 
He asks, what is the definition of free choice and under what circumstances can a person exercise it? That's a great question. Isn't it? It is. Excellent question. Thank you for that, Rick. You know, the in sinful human nature, we've lost the power to resist sin on our own that God originally gave Adam and Eve. But the most powerful thing that he has given to us is the power of choice. And I love the way that you frame this question, what circumstances can a person exercise it? The answer is every circumstance. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you're facing, how bad it may be, or how difficult or of a struggle you may be experiencing. You can exercise that free will of choice. You can choose God. You can choose Jesus at any time your heart desires. And that's a wonderful thing. And so what happens is, even though we don't have the strength to resist temptation or sin, when we are faced with it, and when we make the choice to say, God, I'm giving you my will, I'm choosing you, I recognize I am weak, but you are strong, I'm going to give you my will, my power of choice, God receives that as we give it to him in faith, and then he strengthens it, he gives us divine power, divine grace, divine strength, and he hands that back to us, and now we have the strength that we need to resist that temptation. That's a powerful thing. Yes, it is. The challenge too many people have is that they're getting by on willpower. Yes, yes. But, but yes. willpower isn't where it's at. That's right. It's God's power. And you give your will to God, as you said, and God works in your life. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we surrender our will to God, and we go from there. So it's not willpower that we have. It's the power of the will that God has. He That's gives right. us that power. We yield our will to God, and God works in our lives. Great. Thanks very much for that. Charles asks, who are the unsaved? Well, who are the saved? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The saved are those who believe. Uh, I want to get over here to Romans and read in Romans chapter 10. And it speaks about saved people again, where it says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the unsaved are not them. Those that haven't called upon the Lord. They haven't chosen the Lord. Again, it goes back to that last question. Those who have chosen are chosen, right? Those who have chosen Christ are chosen. Yeah. What we don't want to do is say, well, the unsaved are the people who do this. Yes. Or who don't do that. That's right. We don't know that. That's right. You know, I want to say this. Over in Revelation chapter 14 and 18, the Bible speaks about Babylon, this great system that's opposed to God at the end of time, right? Yes. And it's a system that involves or implicates hundreds of millions of people worldwide. You can't say, well, that's a lost person, because in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4, God says to Babylon, come out of her, my people. My people. So God even has people, one would assume saved people or people who are close to salvation, you understand, who are in even this thing called Babylon. So the unsaved, it's where you are with Jesus. We don't want to be saying it's them or them or these or those. That would be we're, most inappropriate. We're just simply unqualified to make those decisions or, or, or to make those calls. We don't know what's in the heart of a person, and, and, but God knows. God reads the heart. He knows the depths of the experience of that person, and he's the only one that can qualify that. So we have to be careful with who we are thinking are unsaved, and we might find ourselves like the publican and the Pharisee, yep. right? That's right. Question from a lady I'll call Brenda. Pastor, how do you go by faith 
and then accept God's will. I'm lost in that. I have cancer, and I have hope that God will heal me, but I also need to accept his will. How do I reconcile those two, she asks. That's a tough one. First thing, Brenda, we're sorry about the battle that you're having. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to smile, not because of the battle you're having, but because of the God who's on your side. God is with you, you know, uh, and he's with you and he'll be with you to the end whenever the end is. Okay, Wes, let's talk about that. Uh, you have faith. Should a, should a person who's unwell have faith that God can heal them? Is it, is it wise? It is, and uh, I think it's possible. Okay. Is there ever a time that a person should just give up and go, no, God can't, God can't heal me, and just go, no, I'm fine, God, let me die, or, or I'm, I'm going to die, you can't heal me? That's my question. Is there a time, I mean, are you saying, look, if you've got a, a, appendicitis, yeah, you need to have faith that God can heal you. If you've got prostate cancer, you can believe, but if you've got uh, ovarian cancer, then you shouldn't be it doesn't matter, right? No, it doesn't matter. How sick, what the condition. That's right. You can believe that God will heal. You can believe, and God can if he wills. And I believe that God will heal every person yes. that is sick, that has faith in him, depending upon the timing. Yeah, the timing right. may be different for everybody. It may that's not right. be to the second coming. Yeah. It may be instantaneously. It may be over time. And we just need to leave the timing with God yeah. and trust him. And so many examples of that. You know, I had cancer myself, and I was laying on my deathbed, and God really worked a miracle for me. And, you know, the greater miracle than the healing is the change of the heart. Oh, yes. That's what I believe. Yes, yes. Brenda, we want to encourage you to have faith, real strong faith. Don't have faith, pardon me, in the doctors and what they say. I don't mean anything disrespectful there. Have faith in God. The doctor might say, sorry, there's no hope for you. Don't take that. The doctor might say, oh, you're going to breeze through this. Well, hold. no doctor is God. Have faith that God is working through the medical team. That's what I mean. Have faith that God is going to work through the treatments, whatever they look like. Have faith in God. Just hang on. Have as many people pray for you as possible and keep on praying and claim the promises, claim the promises, claim the promises. But ultimately, what we do is we pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what I would encourage you to pray. Lord, heal me. Lord, heal me. That's always the right thing to pray. And along with that prayer, pray, Lord, whatever happens, let this glorify you. That's what you want. We're all going to die one day if Jesus doesn't come back first. What we want, though, is that our lives and our deaths honor and bring glory to God. I don't know how to, how to help you, well, not help you, how to tell you to, to figure this thing out. Um, because it's it's a struggle. It is. A lot of people lose their way because they don't see God working on their timeline or in the way that they want God to work. But I can tell you from personal experience, many times, going through difficulties, including cancer, Brenda, including cancer, that God can bring beauty out of ashes. Absolutely. And I remember a coworker that I was um, working with, and we had gotten cancer at the very same time. And as I was getting better, she was actually getting worse. Mm. And she actually went to her rest. But in that, her entire family, many of them, came to know Christ yeah. because of her example and her life and her testimony. And so God can bring beauty out of ashes. And we don't always understand or know, or nor can we see 
what he's going to do, but we can be sure that God will not let any amount of suffering that we experience be for naught. He has something good that can come out of all of it. And so we want to encourage you to be strong in him. Don't lose faith in him. He's your only source of strength in life. Yeah, that's right. Amen. No point adding to that. That's, that's well put. Question from Charlotte. How can the God who wanted to kill off the Israelites, or hold tight, he wanted to kill them off. Well, let's keep reading. And ordered the children of Israel to kill men, women, and children. Now, he did do that. Be the same God who died on the cross for us and cares about every sparrow that falls. How can these two realities be congruent? Well, Charlotte, the first thing I want to do is congratulate you for using the word congruent in a question. That's very good form. But secondly, I want to encourage you to go to itiswritten.tv and then click on the It Is Written television program, our flagship program tab, and watch a program called Love and Destruction because we get into that really uh, in depth. Love and Destruction. Watch that program. It'll explain it in depth. But now... There are several reasons God said wipe out certain individuals. The primary reason is they passed the point of no return. There was no hope for them, and God knew that. Um, you think of the, the uh, Amalekites, well, any of the, any of the ites. God had worked with them and labored with them and labored with them and worked with them and revealed himself to them, and they knew that the God of Israel was with God. They heard about what happened when uh, Israel got out of Egypt. They knew all about that. They knew about the miracles and the plagues and the water out of a rock and the manna on the ground and great deliverance that God had wrought for his people, they knew. So they had, they had canceled God, and they were beyond redemption. Secondly, they were wicked, wicked. I was really interested once that I, I saw this article about how the British Museum, the wonderful museum in London, uh, had an exhibition of art from Nineveh. Mm. Assyrian wow. art, and they said this is some of the worst, most brutal, cruel, vicious stuff you've ever seen depicted. They were horrible Nasty. people. There's a reason Jonah was upset that God saved him, because they were such awful people. And so God knew that the earth was better off without them, and they would be on redemption. Also, they were, they were an existential threat to God's people. Through Israel, God was going to bring the Messiah. And some of these people who hung around, they were going to wipe Israel out, and maybe Israel would never have lasted long enough for Messiah to be born. God destroyed these people as a demonstration of his love. You were going to add something, I think. Yeah, you know, in Genesis chapter 15, I think there's a perfect text that really nails this concept. It's verse 16, Genesis 15, 16. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or complete. Mm. And so that demonstrates that God, even with nations that don't know him, he bears patiently with them. And there's a cup of iniquity that's being filled. And once they reach that point and, and, the, and they are no longer willing or able to turn back to him, it's better as if they were no longer around. That's right. And so God allows that to take place. And so we have to remember that God doesn't destroy unless they, it comes to a point where there is no hope for that person. And that's not because God doesn't offer hope. It's because they have refused it and refused it until they're unwilling or unable to do that. And so for the protection of God's people and for protection of good, he will sometimes cause that elimination. It's not pleasant, but at times in a sinful world, it's necessary. I don't think God enjoys it. No, not at all. It happens because it's necessary. That's right. Great question, Charlotte. If you've got questions, please do get them to us. That's all we have time for right now. But we'll do this again soon, and we certainly hope you will join us. With Wes Peppers, I am John Bradshaw. This has been 
line upon line, brought to you by It Is Written.